0: Oh, hello and welcome to episode 31 of Curiosityness. I am Travis Rose, the host, and this episode is very interesting. I have on Peter Hunt, who is the author of The Lost Intruder, Setting the Hook, and Angles of Attack. And he's just had, he does, he has a super cool story, uh, life story. And basically these books cover that and, and kind of connect all it together. But we just kind of talk about his life and how, uh, things he've done, including like diving the, uh, Andrea Doria and, you know, his time in the, in the Navy overseas and his, uh, how he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and how that has affected him and, and all this kind of stuff. So Peter's just a super interesting guy. He was very fun to talk to. Um, and I think you'll like this interview. It takes us probably, a, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes to really get into a flow and, and start having a, a good in-depth conversation. So stick with it for a little bit, but uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Peter. All right, we're going. How you doing, Peter? Doing great. How are you, Travis? I'm doing good. So, uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time to be on and uh, talking with me. I appreciate it.
1: So, uh, no problem. It's my pleasure. I enjoy it.
0: Cool. So, I mean, I found you through um, Amazon. Your your book, uh, Sitting the Hook, popped up. But then, you know, I kind of went on, your, went on your site and everything like that. And you have, like, this crazy, interesting story and in life that you lived. It's so cool. So, you know, that's just kind of what... I mean, I'll kind of let you lead a little bit here because I feel like that's you know you have a lot that you've done and and have a lot to share and have learned and stuff, right?
1: I think so. I think so. I mean, I I still think of myself as as a I mean as an average person. I don't. I I take exception to your characterization of me as uh, as anything special. <laughs> well,
0: that's good. You're you're humble too, I guess.
1: Well, I, I tried it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, let, I guess let's just start with how did, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. I guess when somebody kind of asks, you know, what you do or, or something like that, how do you kind of respond to them?
1: Well, that's my, that's my worst question ever. I hate, I hate what you <laughs> do because, because I mean, I, I'll go to, I'll start at the end because it's the best lead in for your question. But, uh, uh four, 14 years ago at uh, 43, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I was a pilot flying for United Airlines at the time. So now what do I do? Nothing. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm essentially, that's a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, I have been unable to fly since then. And I've done a number of things in the meantime, most of which is now right. Um, but I hesitate to tell people I do that for a living because I certainly don't make enough money out of it to live off.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, so that's fair. So I guess when you're on... If, if you're an airline pilot and then you develop Parkinson's, is that you, you're you not eligible to be an airline pilot anymore?
1: Pretty much the medication, as soon as you start taking it, uh, it prohibits you. Um, I, I could have stayed on a little bit longer, who knows how long, if I opted not to take any medication, but that's a, that's a give and take. And so I, I just uh, decided not to.
0: I see. Okay. So it's more the... The medications, whatever side effects or something that that prohibit you from from flying or driving or and stuff like that.
1: Not driving, but uh, from flying, at least initially in the, in the earlier stages when you first diagnosed. Well, first of all, when you're first diagnosed with Parkinson's, you've used up something crazy like ninety nine percent of your dopamine levels in your brain. So so it's already been progressing for quite a while when it's diagnosed. Oh but wow that point generally the symptoms aren't severe enough. Mine was just a tremor in my right hand um, that that won't stop you from flying. But uh, the medication uh, and some medication has arguably shown a little bit of evidence that it might prolong the, uh, the onset uh, from getting worse of severity. So I, I opted to go ahead and, and take that, take the medication that was available at the time and do that route. Okay. But essentially, essentially, sooner or later, you're not going to be flying with Parkinson's right. one way or
0: another. I see. Okay, so I guess, like, how should we, what do you think is the best way to kind of attack this? Should we talk with maybe your early life and in and, and growing up and how that all affected you and, and kind of affected your, you know, life experiences and led to these books and everything?
1: Uh, sure, yeah, I think that would, uh, that would be impactful. I mean, I... Uh, I grew, I was born in New York, but I grew up in Athens, Greece, for six years when I was younger. Uh, you know, two years in elementary school, uh, two years in in middle, and two years in high school. We went back and forth. My father was a teacher, and he could only get sabbatical every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So, um, that way. And uh, so, living overseas had a huge impact on me, just because of my curiosity and uh, and and exposure to a lot of different things a lot of different lifestyles, a lot of different ways of looking at the world, which I think we sometimes are limited in right now. Mm -hmm. But after that I would go back to uh, the United States, back to New York, and at that time I'd always had a lifelong, uh, at that point a very short lifelong, uh, desire to go to be a scuba diver. It's too expensive and not really available for me in, uh, in Greece at the time. So as soon as I got back to the States in 1978, I uh, enrolled in a course, you know, and uh, and owed my parents money to pay for that, but but got it all squared away, and ended up working at a dive shop, and on a dive boat, uh, and then a second dive shop and a second dive boat uh, for four years, which um, turned out to be I don't know, if if you're not familiar with the diving scene, you, you probably haven't heard of it unless you've read Shadow Divers, um, but it's uh, it, it's called the Wahoo anyway. And it it had made it, it ended up making its first trips uh, with chartered and scheduled passengers after the uh, shipwreck, the Andrea Doria, and I participated in uh, four of those trips in in 1983 and 1984, and that at the time it seemed to be yeah it was a hard, challenging, dangerous dive, but it didn't seem to be anything special to me. But I was 20 years old, and I just didn't know any better. You know?
0: <laughs> Wow. So, okay. So it's a pretty, so in retrospect, it is a pretty challenging dive.
1: Yeah. Yes, it, it always has been. Um, I, like, As I said, I, I had no idea that this was going to usher in an era of um, after I left New York in 1985 to uh, join the Navy to fly. Um, There's a number of advances in, uh, in the dive world, uh, some of them using Trimix for breathing, which uh, stops the onset of nitrogen narcosis, which basically means that you're diving in with a limited mental capacity. You're diving somewhat drunk, uh, which is obviously not a good idea, particularly deep inside a shipwreck, uh, 100 miles out in the ocean. uh, Only only, uh, hope of rescue comes from helicopters. So um, at any rate, there was a number of uh, advances in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, after I left which really increased the, the the number of people going into the Andrea Doria and running charters out there and the uh, the mortality rate just skyrocketed. Uh, a lot of people started, whereas before, sure, people had always died on it, um, diving, but it was here and there, uh, usually due to narcosis. And now that the narcosis had been taken away, oddly enough, the reverse had happened. More people felt Able to go out to it, and it's not a laughing matter at all. But, um, uh, but the irony is, is sort of interesting. Uh, and in my opinion, what happened was a lot of unqualified people ended up diving it and were just in literally over their head, right? But, um, yeah, but, I, but at any rate, um, my first book, uh, setting the hook, really uh, initiated by, um, by by the first uh, set of dives on the Doria because I knew there was something special about it, although I didn't consider it uh, related to diving necessarily, I just realized that I was being tested in a way I'd never been tested before, and that I was reacting in a way that I never really expected or, or knew what to make of it, and um, and that's a common theme throughout my three books in that, uh, well, there's two common themes. One, they're all about me, so my one-trick pony <laughs> if you if you can't handle that then you probably won't like my books <laughs> but but the other one is that uh, that it's it's about not that necessarily physical challenge although there's a bit of that but more so the um, uh, the challenge of growth and introspective and, and what what is really going on that's making me want to go out and do this uh, and and once I'm there what's helping me? one, survive, and two, um, come back feeling enriched and, and, and with a, a degree of uh, personal growth. Mm-hmm. And that, that's actually, the uh, not, to, not, not to give away the ending, but that's very much what the book Setting the Hook is about, is I go back after an 18-year hiatus without having made any serious dives like that, and I take all the advanced courses, then, when I go back i 'm very surprised to learn that what the reasons why I thought I was going back were entirely different from the reasons that I was really trying to return there and um, and i 'm not going to give away the ending, but uh, that was a big eye opener for me, and that uh, that sort of set me up for um, for being in a great place you know, about seven years later no yeah about five seven years later when I was diagnosed with parkinson 's
0: okay, so you went back to to dive again before you were diagnosed with with Parkinson's.
1: Yeah, it was it was about the time probably that I was first experiencing symptoms, but I hadn't been diagnosed yet. Okay, I see. So, but in re- in retrospect, I could tell, you know. Yeah. But that yeah, and, and then that that's that's in a nutshell what the first book is about, and it's really about growing up and um and understanding the past in a way that is. Uh, not just realistic, but it's helpful mm-hmm. and, and and uh and helpful in, in, in personal growth and understanding a little bit perhaps about what uh what's the point or how to get through uh life as it is as it were.
0: Okay. Interesting. So that's kind of the main takeaways of the books and what you've learned from that. So okay, can you tell me I'm I'm curious about um I mean, the Andrea Doria, or Andrea Doria. Am I cor- Pronouncing that correctly?
1: It's, it's really Andrea. It's a guy's name, Andrea oh. Doria, Andrei. but everybody pronounces it really Andrea Doria. <laughs> at least so I, I. It would sound weird to pronounce it correctly. Oh, Okay. So, <laughs> weird to pronounce it and I won't call you
0: on it. Okay. Okay. So we'll we'll just go with Andrea Doria. We'll be wrong, but we'll be with everybody else here in the U.S. Yes. <laughs> Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm familiar with, you know, I've, I've heard of it obviously and I'm familiar with the overall story, but can you kind of give me um, and the people listening like a, a little bit of a history on that?
1: Sure. The Andrea Doria was a, uh, was a premier liner when it sank in 1956. Uh, it was the, at the the end of the, uh, the end of the luxury liner uh, glory years. And when they're starting to be retired in a, a year or two later, really the jet age, uh, took over, and people just didn't use, did not use them anymore as a common transportation. Uh, It it was on its way uh, out of New York back to Genoa, Italy, its home port, when it, uh, and at the Nant, off of the Nantucket Lightship, about 50 miles south of Nantucket, 100 miles from Montauk, you can visualize and triangulate Montauk, Long Island, New York. Um, There was a point where in a deep fog. Due to a confluence of errors on both uh, ships' cruise parts, the two the uh, Stockholm, which is another liner uh, from from Sweden, and the Andrea Doria collided. Now, uh, the Andrea Doria uh, took the worst of it, uh, and the and Stockholm, with its icebreaker bow, ended up piercing its its starboard side, uh, and um, and about ten hours later, uh, it, it it sunk. It sank. Now that now, the fact that it took ten hours in retrospect lends a certain element of um, of calm to 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 the understanding situation, but it almost immediately healed over to twenty degrees angle of list, and and that's an extreme angle. So it seemed that it was going to go slip under at any moment for it for the ten hours it took to sink. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the most remarkable things about the uh, accident itself. Is the rescue in that there was a uh, fifty-one people who were killed in the initial collision, uh, and a few who of, of those people due to injuries inc- incurred on the initial collision, but uh, the um, the there is nobody else killed after that. In that um, that that everybody was rescued successfully uh, due to the uh, efforts of of a number of ships. I, I think I believe five five different ships. Oh. They came racing to the S uh, signal. Uh, and then since then, uh, the day after she sank, uh, Peter Gimbel uh, dove, dove the wreck. He charged a <laughs> fishing boat out of Nantucket and followed the bubbles down with uh, uh, Joe Fox, a friend of his. And they went down and just with uh, double hosed air regulators and uh, took p- snap pictures that ended up on Life Magazine's cover.
0: Wow. So
1: it's, From the day it sank to the day after it sank, there was a transition from the importance of her as an above-the-water icon of of shipping, luxury liner shipping, to below the water and what would eventually be termed uh, somewhat unofficially as um, as the uh, Mount Everest of shipwrecks.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: uh, since then, the the, last reason why it was determined that was uh, because of the ability to to, um, to penetrate the wreck. It was nearly intact completely in the first several decades. And so the, the distance you could travel inside to hunt for artifacts and just look around was only limited by your uh, skill and brains. Wow. Uh, lack of brains, I, I should say. <laughs> um, which, which earlier on, uh, you know, with the narcosis involved with that, uh, affected everybody to a certain degree. Um you know, as the years went on, it collapsed. and now these days, it, from what I understand, uh, it's been pretty much almost flattened, and there's really nowhere that you can go in the inside like, like people used to in the, in the glory days, the, the, the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, uh, but it's still a big attraction. I just wouldn't necessarily call it the Mount of Everest of shipwrecks anymore. I don't think that would never that would necessarily be a fitting title,
0: right, yeah, wow. I can imagine that must just be insanely cool and almost eerie to have a boat that intact uh sunken at the bottom of the ocean like that, where you can even swim inside of it. Did you ever get to do did you how like when you went down to explore, did you ever go into it like that
1: uh, <laughs> Yes, starting with the very first time on it, and uh, <laughs> and, then, and I ended up making thirteen dives on it in those two years, eighty three and eighty four, and, and uh, it it would have been less reckless to dive the outside first and, and acclimate yourself, but you never know out there, a hundred miles from shore, uh, you're you're hooked up to the shipwreck in the middle of the shipping lanes, uh, and current uh, and fog is and current are are, are common there. It really uh, you, you you took every chance to dive it very seriously, and you wanted to uh, maximize what, whatever you got from the dive uh, as much as you could. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the first, for, for pretty much all 13, uh, my buddies and I went inside, and we would drop in through a hole that had been cut by a, a follow-on Peter Gimbel expedition in 1981 to retrieve the purser safe. Um, they were unsuccessful, but they did find the Bank of Rome safe. And then anybody who's alive in the '80s will remember they had it on TV, and they opened it and got nothing but soggy bills out—that sort of thing. <laughs> but it was an amazing feat to get it, and and in the process they cut open uh, the uh, the foyer deck doors, so that people now had access to deep inside their into deep inside the wreck through those doors, wow. and. And so, where, where we would typically go in would be we drop in from the hole, which was at then it was about 100, 170 feet deep, go down just uh, referencing our depth gauges because that was the only thing you could see in the murk and the disarray of all the uh, obstacles that had gone, you know, helter skelter thrown about as the ship sank. Right. Plus, the fact there's a couple feet of silt in there made visibility very problematic. You drop down 25 feet go uh, go uh, aft um, another uh, you know, 70 feet, turn around, get a reference to a bulkhead, and then drop our feet in the silt and start digging for China and, and anything we can get. So in our mesh bag, sometimes we miss, and, but can, we usually get it in the mesh bag. And then when, you, when our time was up, you can just see your gauges by holding them up really close to your face. We we engage at reference point, and feel our way out. So the entire thing, uh, from from the moment we, we reached the end of the passage to the time we were out of there, was done with zero visibility just by feel. And that was by design, because we knew that second we touched the silt, we weren't going to see anything anyways mm-hmm. anymore, so you might as well for it. Wow. And it seemed to work pretty well, except that um, sometimes people got a little ahead of themselves, uh, in other words, me, and I, uh, I, I went beyond where we normally had gone, this is, I think, on our second trip in 1983, second expedition, and I, I knew that the uh, first class dining room was just beyond where we, we had been digging. And I left my buddy there without, without telling him, Just I figured I was just going to stick my head in, out and look at it. As it turns out I ended up swimming out into the middle of the first class dining room. By the time I turned around to come back, um, my buddy, his digging had been carried into the uh, first-class dining room by a slave smack in the face, free-floating in the uh, the first-class dining room. Um, At that point, there was only one way in and one way out, and I didn't know whether it was uh, up or down or straight ahead. And uh, that was the first in my life experience where I felt... At the same time, wildly out of control, um, and, um, and and with an overabiding sense that I'm going to get out of this. I just got to keep keep working at it. Uh-huh. But it's it's going to be okay. Um, and and since, well, I want to jump ahead of myself, but that's that's the feeling and the um, the overall sense of well being. In the face of adversity, serious adversity, that I've tried to, um, I've tried to recreate and determine what, what's what's the source of that, and that's what my writing is really about. That's a commonality between my three books. Um, great. So I did, I did after going too high and going too low, uh, eventually find my way out. Um, but it was it was a, a, a um, an experience that I'll, that I'll never forget. For a variety of reasons, but but fear being the biggest one.
0: Yeah. Whew, man. So I guess you just kind of have a a feeling of do you feel like panic when this is happening, or do you just kind of feel like like motivation Why? or I don't know. I don't
1: I, I feel panic. Yeah. There's <laughs> no, question. no question it was a fight against panic, followed very shortly thereafter by an odd calming effect, which I attributed at the time to the nitrogen narcosis. You know, if you, it, that can either make you more panicky or it can—I suppose—it could calm you down. It's like um, laughing gas to the dentist. Uh-huh. You know, it's the same sort of thing. Um, now, which one, which one it was, I'm not really sure, but uh, uh, yes, you, you know. I, it's, I, think I I think the words I use in, in the book are between a paralyzing panic and, a, um, and and a decisive reasoning. But there's a razor thin line there where you, you don't lose control and you keep your head about you. but you know that things just got real serious. Mm-hmm. And if you make one mistake, uh, you might get away with it, but you very good chance you're not going to.
0: Right. So is this something that is sort of natural to, I mean, is it just something that you were kind of born with, or do you think it's something that you've sort of developed?
1: To, to the contrary, I would say I was absolutely not born with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I look back and I see what some of these people have done since I, since I left there in 1985, New York, and I see that the penetrate with the penetrations and that sort of thing they're doing they seem very suited for it, and, and they seem naturals at it. Uh, for me, it was a fight every, every kick of the way. Um, but, and that's partially why, I mean, I don't feel, it wasn't like I was, um, I felt a supernatural, uh, you know, inability to be hurt or anything crazy like that. But I, I did feel... A, 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 a strange, unexperienced calm come over me and and a realization that while things were impossibly unlikely to survive, that it would be okay. Mm-hmm. That I would get, if I just kept my head and just kept trying to process through it. Um, it's what I, you know, and this is, since I've written my third book, I've really started to research this more. And it's what I've come to, you know, learn is called uh, a peak experience, you know, which is I think termed by Maslow, Abraham Maslow, the psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. and what it is, what it is essentially, in in my words, at any rate, is um, the act of uh, of going with total purpose and confidence into a near impossible situation with with exceptional abilities that are beyond your own um, your own understanding, and despite the the unlikelihood of success, having a feeling deep in your in your soul that it's going to be okay and and to to have that feeling once will will want you will we'll beg for you to go back and try and try and either experience again or try and figure out what it is and I've had it happen in all three of my books huh. and not in, not in the books but in the stories the books relate
0: yeah
1: and um um and and in very very different circumstances, uh, but that that in a nutshell is 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 the um, main uh, exciting influ- aspect of my books that that I that I try to relate the part that uh, that is that is physically dangerous and challenging. Then beyond that, I think, particularly in my third book, *The Lost Intruder*, uh, it it becomes quite a bit more more introspective and uh trying to understand why things have occurred and and how they've occurred
0: right interesting yeah I don't I don't know if I've ever experienced anything like that I don't think I have but i will I'll get this like I mean for with like I've never been uh scuba diving or anything but more um just like snorkeling and, and different things like that and like zip lining. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing where your adrenaline gets pumping and stuff like that. And I'll feel like, you know, I'll feel my adrenaline, adrenaline go up and everything. And, and I just know that I have to do it. Um, and then I'm, what I more enjoy is almost the feeling afterwards of like the sense of accomplishment that I actually did it and that it it's over with and that, you know, I did what I wanted to do and accomplished it and now I can relax and I'm done and I'm safe. Did you... Did you, do you have those kind of, you know, feelings afterwards or?
1: That's, 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 um, that's part of what I felt for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, these peak experiences are apparently very com- common in athletes uh-huh. and professional athletes learn, I think often to, to perform at that level or at command, which is really amazing. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's, it's not restricted to life threatening, uh, circumstances by any means. Um, and from what I've read, uh, it can happen in, in all sorts of endeavors, but it's just, act. it's, you're acting on step, um, in the groove with a heightened sense of awareness and what Maslow also calls self-actualization. Um, and that's, uh, beyond that in my, in my understanding of it to a certain degree, but it encompasses it as, as, as one aspect, peak experiences that it was.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it- Uh, is like having a peak experience, is that something that you would kind of recommend or hope that everybody at least experiences once?
1: Well, I certainly do in, in, in the fields of, uh, if they can achieve that in athletics or I I know that I felt it at times writing, you know, when you find your voice and you're writing and things become effortlessly and you look back the next day over that and you go, Wow. That was pretty good, (laughs) and and uh, and then the next day it's just a drudge and it's it's hard and it's normal. Right. Um, I I know that I've experienced it to to a less dramatic degree in things like writing. Um, I I think it's it's one. I think maybe a lot of people experience it without realizing it or without acknowledging it. But in order to for for me to for to really to catch my attention. It needed to be something physical and something with a certain element element of a risk and danger to it, um, and and that's that's my shortcoming. Other people I don't think need to need to do that necessarily to feel it, but I'm not. I don't think there's a recipe that I'm aware of to to achieve it. Um, I certainly haven't found it. I can't turn it on and off. But peak athletes would be the ones to ask about that, I suppose, because. Evidently, there are some who can really, really turn it on and off. at will.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Because I, I guess when you were talking about it before, I just kind of thought of it and assumed that it was only kind of from a physical experience. But that makes sense. Where I think we've all sort of experienced that where we can, when we think about it, if, you know, getting into that peak performance, you know, spot where stuff just flows and feels good and it just happens. You know.
1: Flows is the perfect word for it. And, um, not to get too metaphysical, but I really do think it's, 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 it's flowing with, with the net, with where you're going to end up anyway, but it's just, you're not fighting it. Mm. You're not fighting going with it. Um, it, in my first book, it, it came from a very different experience, but, uh, but, but in many ways, a lot more distinct and a lot more, um, compact because of the training I had undergone. Much like a peak athlete, you know, different subject, but they they, they train constantly and, and with very high technology. They train naval aviators the same way. And my first book, Angles of Attack, is about flying uh, A-6 shooter attack bombers from the USS Ranger during Operation Desert Storm. Um, and I was uh, fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, depending on how you look at it, with my bombardier navigator to launch on the ranger's first strike, uh, which was a low-level mission into a, a coastal naval facility off of Iraq, which meant uh, covering about seven miles of, uh, of uh, land. And it was highly defended, you know, with multiple surface to air missile systems and just myriad uh, anti-aircraft artillery emplacements, shooting basically guns up in the sky to such a degree that they were just hoping. That it's called barrage fire. You just shoot up enough, and they figure that there's no way anybody can get through it. And and you're going to shoot yourself down because you're going to hit a piece of metal. You're going up or going down, and 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 you and that's going to bring down the jet, or it will distract the pilot enough that they, they abort before they go to the target. Um, I, I, because of the training, because of a number of reasons, that I would say it heightened experience even a lot more over. Than being lost in the Andes, which had occurred to me uh, eight years prior to that, mm. uh, and it was, it was much more uh, succinct, defined, um, and and I you know I was doing things, quite frankly, which I would have made my my stomach turn, you know, a week before, off target, flying two hundred feet off the ground, making a five G turn in the fog, mm. uh, you know, at night. My... <laughs> Jeez know, uh, but while you're getting shot at, uh, and it's, it's just, it's an absolute feeling of being on step, being, uh, being ready, you know, and at a heightened sense of awareness, um, and, and, and all the things that I described before, but that was, that experience in total got me thinking as to, there's something important going on here and why didn't, I couldn't verbalize it or, um, or think about it in, in a cogent manner, like I hope I'm projecting now. But it, uh, it, I knew there was something important and needed to be conveyed, and so I told the story through the book, Angles of Attack, and uh, and and I, I now that I look back, it's it's crystal clear to me the the commonalities between these three books and these three three life experiences that have really defined who I am. Uh, yeah, the the other place on the around the aircraft carrier, which I think uh, pilots routinely experience this, is um, during night carrier landings, uh, where the level of concentration and uh, and proficiency has to be at such a such a level every time you do it, whether you're feeling good, feeling bad, anything, that sooner or later you're gonna you're gonna have that feeling that you're that well oh, tonight was just it was effortless, it was easy. And then you go back every every inch of the way and you're scared shitless, frankly, you know? So, um, it, it's, it's, that, that's, that's essentially what, what my first book, uh, which was my second set of, uh, of experiences with peak experience, uh, is, is, is about.
0: Right. Okay. Whew, wow. So I guess, so, um, just jumping back to the diving at the Andrea Doria, was that what was the um, like reason or impetus to do that? Was it just to kind of explore it, or was there kind of a goal to to doing that?
1: Well, the, yes, to explore it, but there's a certain urgency to to it initially. And the reason was is that when Peter Gimbel cut those four deck doors open and started to dig out the uh, all the um, debris to try and find the purser safe. Uh, he made a movie of it and he aired it in you know in 1982 I think and it showed basically that um, there was uh, there was China just laying out there just hand painted and it was basically a wreck diver's dream I mean artifacts at that time it's it's a huge no 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 these days to take artifacts off bricks but back then that, that was the reason you were doing it. It was all trophy. Right. It was all trophy. And, and there, was, there was a little bit of financial value to it, monetary value, but not enough to risk your life. I mean, back then you could sell maybe a really nice rare piece of China for $200. And, and so that, that wasn't the reason you were doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that that became commonly known um, in 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 the wreck diving cadre circles, and and that's why people were going out there and started charter boats actually to go out there was to recover some of this china, and then that led on to to all sorts of other things in different different places to penetrate the wreck and different goals. And and these days, I suspect there's um, there's they're way well the artifact hunters are probably outnumbered. By the uh, by, the photographers and videographers, really but um, but they're still out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, I, that must just be amazing. That would be so uh, so amazing to see. I can't imagine. Um, so the uh, the Stockholm that hit the Andrea Doria did that didn't sink, did it?
1: No, no, it had a nice, nice reinforced bow because it was used to cruising in northern waters, mm-hmm. and it was a Swedish liner. And they, there was five people killed in, in the initial collision again, but they were the only people. They were up in the, in, by the uh, bow anchor, and uh, actually one of them was dragged to the bottom with the anchor. The anchor was inadvertently released, and oh, he was yeah. dragged to, they had to torch, uh, with an acetylene torch, the chain off the anchor and, and, and abandon it because they anchored right near the collision, and the two were in danger, of coming back into contact with each other. The Andrea Doria and the Stockholm. Oh wow! But um, so it's you know for for the first several hours, actually the first the full ten hours until the last person was off, and then thirteen hours uh, after that, you know, not after that, thirteen hours after the collision, it, the Andrea Doria eventually sank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um, there, there was there was a lot of uh, stories of, uh, of 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 bravery, some of cowardice. Uh, some of alleged cowardice, um, but I would recommend, uh, I think there's about every 10 years, eight or 10 years, a new book is written about the topside, side, uh, you know, experience of, of the collision and that sort of thing. I'd still recommend the first one written, which is by Alvin Moscow in 1958 or something, just a couple of years after uh-huh. the uh, collision. And he was a New York times reporter. And uh, and that's from from my book. That's where most of my information comes from. For for the top top side information, I gladly give him credit because cause he's written a phenomenal book.
0: Wow. Okay. Cool. Good to know. Yeah, I'm interested in that because it just seems the sheer like coincidence of them of these two boats just running into each other in the ocean is just. I mean, well,
1: well, what you have to understand, and I, and I guess I did not explain this, was that. The Nantucket Lightship is a point that pretty much every ship leaving, going to the to the uh, uh, to the east, and every ship coming into New York Harbor will transit within you know a couple miles of it. So uh, it is a big right there, right there. It's a very crowded ocean. Um, now there's set rules at the time, which were voluntary, you know, which would dictate which side you go on, speeds that you do this. Type of thing since then, I think they've become more mandatory. Yeah. But they, you know, if you're not a signatory to the uh, to the pact, which I know this Stockholm wasn't, uh, then then you, you you don't have to abide by them. In any case, they're routinely ignored, even by the signatories. Just because <laughs> oh, time and money, and and you know, and and it, a captain is judged by his ability to keep a schedule. You know, and if he wanted to keep command of his ship. Then he better make his schedule. And that's, you know, I like to think we've grown completely, but from my, um, my experience of 10 years of flying in the airlines, sometimes we're, we're not as advanced and as evolved as we'd like to think we are. You know, and we all come to these pressures. But, yeah. um, but hopefully, hopefully, in the airline industry, and I believe it's true, uh, it's a lot more safe.
0: Mm hmm. Wow. Okay. So I guess let's, so after you, you kind of moved back to New York and you were doing this diving and stuff, but then you, that's when you, uh, went to, went into the, uh, military right after that? 1985. 1985, Okay. And then, so I guess, can you just tell me a bit about that? We kind of went into it a a bit of what you did, but I mean, what was kind of your experience and all that stuff?
1: Well, I uh, I went to Aviation Officer Candidate School. If anybody's who's seen the movie, "An Officer and a Gentleman," that's what that's based on. Although the real thing is quite a bit harder than the movie. Oh. The are- <laughs> but um, essentially that meant that you get to pay for your own college and then 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 enter the, the Navy without anybody helping you out. Um, but oh, going as an officer with the the opportunity, not no guarantees, but an opportunity to fly depending on your, your grades and your physical ability, primarily your eyesight, how well that holds up. I, I was fortunate and, and, and lucked into basically having a good pair of eyes and at the time, not anymore. But, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I, I did, did pretty, pretty well in, in flight school. And so I ended up flying A6s uh, after I got my wings in 1987. And that was up in uh, Weed Beyond, Washington, which is where I'm living now. And uh, then I, I ended up making three deployments, uh, two on the uh, carrier Ranger and one on the carrier Kitty Hawk um, off of uh, the Indian Ocean, the Persian Gulf, and off of Korea for the 1994 uh, uh, nuclear crisis. Nice. But, um, um, essentially, the, the, the defining thing about the A-6 as far as the Navy was concerned was it was the only night, low-level, all-weather uh, bomber. So we would routinely train up here, uh, going you know 500 feet or so in the Olympic and Cascade Mountain ranges, over to the target in Boardman, Oregon, and drop uh, drop practice bombs on you know on, on a target, and then come back you know basically all on the instruments, you know doing it at night in the weather, mm-hmm. and during the 1980s, uh, there's a, a, an unbelievable amount, something like 27, 28. Uh, Aircraft were, were were lost just in training, Whoa. and that this is both coasts worldwide. Um, but but a good number of them, I, I'm guessing, probably a third were in the mountains up here just training. Wow. Yeah. We lost in Desert Storm uh, the second night of the of the war uh, from our sister squadron, another A six squadron on board Ranger. They lost. Uh, an air crew going into the same target that, that Rivers Cleveland and I had gone into, uh, and that was uh, Um Kassar and the crew, that was Tom Costin and Charlie Turner. Uh, and they uh, they also were doing a low low altitude strike, but they were dropping mines at the approach of the waterway inbound, and they, they were shot down, probably by AAA, air, anti-aircraft artillery. Right. Man. But after that, after First couple of days of Desert Storm, um, there was there was a large number of losses. There ended up being five A six losses just in the six week war. And uh, tornadoes had the same type of mission. Mode. It's a, a British uh, uh, attack bomber, and they uh, they lost I think even more six seven or eight. And there was a number of other U uh, S Air Force ones that were lost as well. I believe that had that mission but that was the, the A6 was the only Navy uh, aircraft that had the night low level day night day and night and all weather capability. Um, but after the first week or so of desert storm, uh, they bought everybody high, said this is crazy we're losing way too many aircraft and crew and uh, they never went back down. We lost the mission and the A6s were eventually decommissioned largely because of that in my opinion. And uh, and then I ended up getting out out of the Navy after ten years of of service. Wow!
0: That, right, man, crazy. And it's still it's how you kind of relate them. You know the experience of of flying for the Navy with uh, you know your diving. It's you feel like they're similar kind of peak experiences, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I did not at the time. I, I wouldn't have recognized that, and yeah. I didn't. But I. In the book itself, The Angles of Tech, I do make the reference to diving the engine door and getting lost in the first-class dining room. So I knew there was a commonality there, and and I termed it as it it, it had been the only time I had been that scared before, you know, as on the first strike. Um, But there was more to it. I just couldn't verbalize it then. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, and... uh, and, and essentially, the, the book itself is is about that. And in, in addition to that, there's there's some other side stories, most of which revolves around just giving. It's all they're all nonfiction, of course, about the everyday life on the carrier of, of everybody, you know, the enlisted men who do, do all the hard grunt work, and the who live a pretty pampered life in comparison. And um, and, and, and essentially, with a little little element of personal. I mean, here's an aside. In, in life's oddities, um, my uncle at the time happened to be the United States ambassador to the United Nations, Thomas Pickering. Uh, and he was the ambassador then at the same time that I was flying on the first strike. and My parents had been living in Syria, and they, they were not evacuated until a couple of days after that. So the first night of the war, we were all intimately involved in this situation in, in extremely different ways, huh. couldn't have been. But, but I've always thought that's, that's kind of an odd and interesting, meaningful in some way, but I have no idea how.
0: <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Wow, okay. So then after that, you know, you got out of the Navy and the military, and then you that's when you started um, flying commercially, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. Yes.
1: For 10 years, I flew for United Airlines, and uh, it was, you know, great. It was, it was relatively easy. No no peak experiences there, which is good.
0: <laughs> that's you good, want, yeah.
1: You want everything to be a peak experience. You know, um, excitement is not good, uh, and and that's the way we want it. But, but at any rate, one day I walked into flight operations early one morning, and I looked down, my hands just shaking like this. So I did the manly thing and stuck it in my pocket and kept going (laughs) and, uh, and tried to figure it out on my own for about a month and finally said, okay, I gotta, I gotta go, go to a neurologist and get this checked out and went to, went to a doctor friend and then went to a neurologist and yeah, I had Parkinson's and that was immediately ended my flight career and, um, and I didn't know what to make of it at first or second or third and I'm still, figuring it out as time goes on. But it's been 14 years, and, uh, and that's been quite a travel. In, uh, in 19... Uh, not 19. Uh, two, so I was diagnosed in 2005. Um, in 1980, yes, 1989, this is where they all come together, all the books and all the stories. A um, An AVA-6 out of Whidbey Island, up where, near where I live, uh, from my squadron. Uh, had gone flying to go on a mission, a training mission, and climbing through 12,000 feet, they had a hydraulic failure. They came back to make a precautionary emergency approach, lost their other two hydraulic systems, and ended up crashing in the water to somewhere probably only, you know, at the time we thought it was probably only seven miles to max offshore. Both crew ejected safely were picked up in the water by the by the uh, search and rescue helicopter. Okay. Uh, now, I had flown that plane, that specific plane, uh-huh. uh, both in the aircraft carrier ranger and ashore. The Navy spent two months and four ships looking for it. They could never find it because they wanted to determine with with finality what caused the, the accident. Mm-hmm. So in the back of my mind, you know, hey, I'm a diver. I've flown this plane. Someday I'm going to go look for this and I'm going to find it. Right. You know, but I put, I put it off for, for put it off for year after year after year, decades. And in 2014, my Parkinson's symptoms had gotten to the point where uh, I realized if I don't start looking now, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do it. I can barely dive as it is. Um, I had brains deep brain stimulation surgery scheduled for November of 2014, and so I started looking. When all I had was I had a boat, 32 foot boat. I had dive gear. Uh, my friends bought me a, a a nice high quality recreational depth sounder, and that was it. And I and I went out into a confluence of uh, synchronistic uh, events, of meaningful coincidences, in my opinion. I w- I, I ended up uh, meeting up with a uh, gent who had a side scan sonar, a number of technical divers who were still very interested. One of whom, by the way, had actually been in the same squadron as me a year before and had worked on that plane, oh, he it, and he's he ended up being one of the one of the first three divers to find it when we did find
0: it. Oh, crazy. So,
1: interesting. Anyway, so we ended up looking. It took a year and a half, during which time I underwent brain surgery, which is why I'm able to speak to you now with relatively, probably looks relatively symptom-free. They've got batteries in my chest, and wires going up. That's a wire. I don't know if you can see that. Probably not. Oh, no. It goes up to my brain. I've got two wires go up to my brain and give signals, which um, I, I don't know how, but it does disrupt the erroneous signals sent by my brain to my muscles. Wow. To a certain degree. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mitigated a lot of symptoms, but they are getting worse, and they will continue to get worse mm-hmm. uh, because it only last so long. At any rate, that's, that's what the third book is about. And While there's no... Um, there's no you guys sucking in my dog going in a second. Where was I? <laughs> so uh, y- there's no specific peak experience per se in this in this experience, but overall the entire thing, I had never a doubt in my mind that we were gonna find this. Uh-huh. And the entire experience was a self-actualization, in my opinion, of which it was on a grander scale than that. I mean, it was, it was, I, I was under a lot of uh, discomfort, just plain old pain. And I made a lot of errors. I was never on step. Um, but I knew that I was going to find it. And it has no value. I mean, there's no historic value, no monetary value. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was the perfect goal for me to, to try and set out to, to do, to achieve um, during this period before my surgery and afterwards. And it got me through a very, very difficult time and got me thinking because during that entire discomfort prior to surgery, I was happy. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was in a lot of pain, constant pain. I, I was sleeping two to three hours a night and that was disrupted. I mean, this is for months. Now it's been years, and I still do that. But I was happy then, and I couldn't understand it. And I, and and then I had my brain surgery, and I had knew in my gut when I have that and I lose these symptoms, I'm going to lose that sense of well being. I mean, it wasn't a giddy happiness; it was a peaceful, right? You know, I knew it was okay. And and sure enough, I did. And then I spent the last uh, couple years after that. Um, now it's been over four years, trying to figure out. What what this? How, how to recreate that that happiness without without having to do this sort of experience that I do in our every everyday life, and and I've been doing a lot of reading. I spent a lot of uh, number of years deeply depressed, drinking way too much, um, you know, bad stuff. But I've come to learn that except for the, the drinking part, um, the the depression that we so often are so quick to dispel is what uh, ancient Greeks, you know, called melancholy. And it's essentially, it serves a purpose. It, it, and I look back now and I say, without years of reflection and, and isolation and, and meditation, um, I, I, I would not have come to any of the conclusions that I have as sketchy as they are and as tenuous as they are. They're still what keep me smiling every day, and uh, and and really have have made the entire ride worthwhile.
0: Wow, boom! That was good. I think that was a good uh, conclusion to this, Peter. That was awesome. I love that. Good. good. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, then I guess. I guess so.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. I really, I really appreciate you sharing all that and stuff. And you know, I'm only 25, so I feel like I can't totally, you know, relate to everything that you have to say. But I really love, you know, your stories and everything that you have to share, and and how you're able to learn all that and stuff. I'm really excited to to get in and read your books now. Hello, you there? Oh no worries. No worries.
1: And I had to take decline it. Oh no worries. Okay, (laughs) this is the fortunate thing that we were done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, I appreciate you sharing everything. Um, So where, for people listening, where can we find your books? Where can we find you? Where should they go?
1: You can find uh, the books at Amazon. It's uh, Angles of Attack and and A6 Intruder Pilots War, Setting of the Hook, A Diver's Return to the Andrea Doria, and the Lost Intruder, search for a, the search for a Navy Jet, the lost Navy Jet, uh, missing Navy Jet. <laughs> um, they're available on Amazon, uh, any bookstore on request, but generally they're not stocked in bookstores. And um, and you can also go to my website for more information or to buy them, and that's at uh, PeterHuntBooks.com.
0: Cool, perfect. I'll throw and, it in the. Go
1: ahead. What? And I've got I've got Facebook uh, pages. Preach book as well which are easy enough to
0: find okay sweet yeah i'll throw in the uh the links for all that stuff in the in the bottom of the show notes so people can click on that and, and check them out so cool that's true hey guys travis is here again um so the podcast is over it's done so you can just leave right now so don't worry about it but i just had a couple things i wanted to mention and Say to you guys, so first of all, thanks for listening to the episode or watching the episode. Super appreciate that. Um, if you want to connect with me or in, in the podcast, uh, we are on. We have a website. It's called curiosityness.com. Um, Curiosityness is C-U-R-I-O-S-I-T-Y-N-E-S-S. Kind of weird, um, but that's what it is, curiosityness.com. Uh, you can go there. We have an Instagram. Instagram.com slash curiosityness podcast, so not just curiosityness for the username. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Trav DeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E, if you want to find just me. Um, oh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash curiosityness. or on YouTube. Uh, I think just go to YouTube and search curiosityness, and we'll pop up. Uh I don't think we have a URL for that one. Sorry. Oh, and we have a, I have an email address, travis at curiosityness.com. So if you want to email me, you know, give me your thoughts on the show, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe like a suggestion for a new, for a guest who could come on, maybe yourself or somebody that you know who might be interested or, or you would like to hear on the podcast. Let me know about that stuff. I, I would love to hear that. Um, Oh, and then if you could leave a review, too, for the podcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, the reviews in, like, in Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever, wherever you're listening to this, super help. Um, just drop, like, a star, whatever star review. I won't tell you to do five, but it'd be nice. Uh, so drop a review. You can write a review even, too, if you want. That would be even better. Um, but that's about it. So thanks again for watching. I super appreciate you, you know, listening to the whole show and staying here. Um, And yeah, thanks again. Have a good day. Bye-bye.